Welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I'm not a priest, and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who quickly closes a tab on my computer when my boss walks behind me at work. But it's because I was looking at a Bible passage. Are you worried that you're getting shamed by your boss for looking at the Bible at work, or because it wasn't directly work-related? A little of both. Okay. <laughs> I guess, like, there's plenty of reasons to want to close a tab at work, regardless of its content. <laughs> I was just trying to figure out, like, where your particular issue was. Now, a little of both. Probably more that I should be doing work instead of things for this podcast. I mean, as your co-host, I appreciate that you occasionally do podcast work at work because I know that the amount of research time you do is uh, very intense and I appreciate it a lot. So uh, what did you research this week? This week is a little bit different. Okay. I wanted to take a look at differences in translations of the Bible. Ooh, that's cool. I'm into this idea. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people will look at a Bible passage and they try to parse out the meaning of individual words. Uh-huh. And that can be useful, especially for like a personal faith thing, for seeing how God is speaking to you in a particular passage. Yeah, sure. But it's trickier when you're using it on a broader scale and trying to find a right answer and using it for debating laws or church doctrine. Oh yeah, I could imagine that being tricky stuff. Right, because most of us... Do not speak the languages that the Bible was written in originally. Fair. And even the people who study ancient Hebrew and Greek don't speak it regularly. Sure. That makes sense. <laughs> so we're, we're all working on translations or we're translating as we go. And there's always a bit of interpretation when you translate something into a different language. Yeah, absolutely. I remember my high school French curriculum In the last year of High School Fringe, you got to, as a group, translate a whole musical. Ooh. Which was a lot of fun, but really gave me an appreciation for how hard translating is. Oh, man. You definitely went to art school. I totally went went to art school. It was the same musical every year, but it's a very good musical. There isn't- What musical? It's On Track of Notre Dame translation that is not the Disney version. It's like a specifically French language, like, musical- of the Hunchback story called Notre Dame de Paris. Did you have to sing it after you translated it? You did it? not have to sing it after. Okay, because that would have been wild. No. <laughs> I mean, because like we had vocal music majors at the school, but not all of us were vocal music majors. Sure. So everyone got assigned like a certain number of songs that you had to translate. And then at the end, we like got our translated librettos together and we like watched the movie of the musical with our like translations instead of like putting the subtitles up we had to like watch it with the translation that we had created huh neat it was very cool it was up there on the list of most weird art school things about my high school experience yeah that is pretty classic weird art school <laughs> yeah but it taught me a lot about how hard translation can be for sure yeah and when translating the bible there's kind of three philosophical camps you mm-hmm. can fall into sure the first would be word-for-word word translation, Yeah. also called formal equivalence. Cool. And so this means that you take each word from the original language, and you translate that word to the closest equivalent word. And then you try to make as few adjustments from there as possible, just tweaking it to fit English grammar. Yeah. And so this is basically like if you plug something into Google Translate. Mm-hmm. The second camp is thought-for-thought. Thought. Okay. And this is also referred to as 
dynamic equivalence or mediating equivalence. And this means you take a sentence at a time or a verse at a time, and you translate to get the closest to the author's intent for that chunk of text sure. using a little bit more updated language. Cool. So you're probably doing a little bit of direct translation and then a little bit of like, what is this actually saying and how can I make it sound functional? For sure. This is going to be a little less literal, mm-hmm. but often easier to read. Sure, I can imagine. And so this would be more like if you've got a like vacation guidebook and you're reading the selection of common phrases. Cool, yeah. Is a good example of what that's kind of like. Mm-hmm. And then the third camp is just straight paraphrase. And this is also called functional equivalence. Okay. This means that you're going for an overall idea. Focus here is less strictly on accuracy and more on making the Bible easy to understand and more approachable. Sure. So this is like for beginners. It can be. It can be for beginners or if you're like a scripture scholar, you're not going to use a paraphrase translation. Yes. But like there are people who appreciate mm-hmm. having different takes. So this is like reading the No Fear Shakespeare of the Bible. Or is that more of a dynamic translation? I'm not sure. I haven't read one of those in a while. But the way they've got it set up where they've got the original text next to the translation mm-hmm. is actually, it's called um, interlinear. Okay. Which typically would be more of a word for word. Cool. Uh, that's the most word for word you can get. They'll have like the Greek or the Hebrew line by line. Yeah. And then the uh, English line by every, line. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, my, all of my memories of No Fear Shakespeare are all like, this is a paragraph. This is what they're saying, if not in verse and like not in the same sentence structure, but the idea they're getting across. Sure. So that part of it might be more, might be more like paraphrase. Okay. My example that I have going through the, what each type of translation is like, is this would be like if your friend was listening to a conversation between two people speaking another language and they relate it to you. Okay, cool. Would be like paraphrase. Like, they're talking about the weather. Yeah. In this moment, Moses and God talk about interior design. Exactly. And like that's that whole section of the Bible. Yeah. A lot of what I do on this show is very, very loose paraphrase. Great. It's also important to note that all translations fall somewhere along this spectrum from mm-hmm. strict word for word to full paraphrase. And sometimes the lines blur about exactly what it is. Sure. And so I picked three translations of the Bible. Okay. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how each translation came to be. And then I'm going to read each translation's version of Psalm 3. Cool. Sounds great. Yeah, so originally when I was setting up this episode, I was going to do description, Bible passage, description, Bible passage, description, Bible passage. But then thinking on it, it, it made more sense to just leave all three of them to the end so it'll be easier for you to, to hear the differences. Yeah, sure. I like that plan. So because I did it that way, the first translation that I was going to talk about is not going to be either ends of the spectrum. I'm picking a, a pretty neutral one. Okay. So this would be a dynamic or mediating translation. Cool. And this one is the New International Version. All right. As far as I know, there is no Old International Version. Cool. <laughs> it just is. Yeah. The idea for this translation came from Howard Long, an engineer from Seattle, Washington. One day in 1955, Howard was reading a passage to a non-Christian friend from his favorite translation, the King James Bible. Cool. The friend was having a hard time understanding the language and 
this was really frustrating for Howard. So for the next 10 years, he Mm. went around trying to convince people to help him with a project to try to create something that was easier for people to understand. Finally, in 1965, his church, the Christian Reformed Church, along with the National Association of Evangelicals, agreed to sign on to his project. Okay. And on August 26th and 27th, a group of evangelical scholars met at Trinity Christian College in Pillows Heights, just outside of Chicago, and they agreed to begin working on the new international version of the Bible. Cool. I like the Chicago connection. Yeah. I always get excited when there's one. Yeah. It's very exciting. And when, when they said just outside of Chicago, I was like, oh, is it Wheaton? I bet it's Wheaton. Is it Wheaton? It was not Wheaton. Okay. I was bummed. Fair. <laughs> so... They decided that they were going to start from the earliest Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic manuscripts that they could find, instead of just revising a more recent translation. Good for them. Just go right to the source. Oh, yeah. Actually, all three I talk about today, they all start from source materials instead of from... From an older translation. Yeah. In 1966, this project was formally commissioned, and 80 ministry leaders and scholars formed the Committee on Bible Translation. Great. This group was interdenominational. It included people from uh, the Anglican Church, Assemblies of God, Baptist, Brethren, Christian Reformed, Church of Christ, Evangelical Free, Lutheran, Mennonite, Methodist, Nazarene, Presbyterian, and Wesleyan churches. Oh boy, so many Protestants. Yeah, oh yeah. Once again... (laughs) More Protestants than I can name. Hey. (laughs) I would not have thought of some of these off the top of my head. Yeah. I was like, I don't know what some of these mean. That's fine. We'll talk about them someday. Yeah. We can have a guest on sometime. Yeah. And talk about whatever church they're from. Sure. Are you part of a weird Protestant denomination? Send us an email. Sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com. Yeah. Basically, are you not Presbyterian or United Methodist? Yeah. Or Lutheran. Or Lutheran. Yep. We got plenty of those. If you are not from one of those three, send us an email. So this, this group formed, and in their constitution, they state, The purpose of the committee shall be to prepare a contemporary English translation of the Bible as a collegiate endeavor of evangelical scholars. And they restricted the membership of their committee to those who were, quote, willing to subscribe to the following affirmation of faith. The Bible alone, and the Bible in its entirety, is the word of God written, and is therefore inerrant in the autographs. So they are very serious about the Bible is right, we have to get this right. Yeah. We must take this project seriously. Yeah. And seriously they did? They did. They took it pretty seriously. Good for them. They finished their translation in 1978, and it was part of the Committee on Bible Translation's mandate to continue to update their work as new sources became available. Good for them. Yeah. So it was revised in 1984 and again in 2011. Oh, wow. So they, it's fresh. Yeah. And this translation is often praised for its balance between literal word-for-word accuracy and readability. And supporters say it was a good pushback against the more liberal revised standard version. But they say editorialized and over-paraphrased. Grumble, 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 grumble. Grumble, grumble. <laughs> but like in the grand scheme of things... Revised standard version is not that bad. Okay. <laughs> I suspect that, that the, the version you have picked for that is even further along the spectrum than the revised standard. Oh, yeah. We're going to get Buckwild. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime Brian describes something as Buckwild, you know you're in for fun. Uh, or other people won't think it's as wild as I do. <laughs> I mean, I have very little to go off of, so I'm going to trust you that it's wild. <laughs> so- Brian once joked... 
that we needed a game in his house that involved the most bizarre Bible translation he could find to use as a reference. Oh, yeah. And so I think we might have found it. (laughs) This one is, I'm sure there are weirder ones out there, but this is, the one that I picked for paraphrase is the most far out there one that people are familiar with. Cool. But we'll get to that. (laughs) We've got some time. So yeah, people did not like the Revised Standard Version. I don't know why. For a while, it was used by Catholics, and I think it was a Protestant Catholic thing. Okay. And critics of this version, the New International Version, say that it has a strong Protestant bias. I mean, it was translated by a whole bunch of Protestants. It was. The example given is that the same word is translated as tradition when it's spoken of negatively, and teachings when spoken of positively, implying that tradition is always bad. Ah, yes. Okay, I see where where they could (laughs) be saucy about that one. So the Catholics were not a fan of things like that. Sure. But this is a very, very popular Bible, still widely used. One of the most popular Bibles. King James might be more popular. Cool. All right. Yeah, and then other critics just say it isn't literal enough. All right. (laughs) Can't make them all happy. Yeah, that's the point. The point is that it's this one is like about as dead in the middle um, on all the scales that I was looking at. Great. The next one that I'm going to talk about is a word-for-word translation. Oh, boy. As close as you can. The most literal version you could get would be an interlinear Bible, like I talked about. Yeah. Where where you've got the original language right next to the English version. I think Megan had one when she was on the show. She did. She was very excited about it. It was in Greek. Yeah. And she was very worried about getting grape juice on it. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so after interlineal Bible, this is as word for word as it goes. Yeah, so we're going one step away from that because we don't want to suffer through me butchering Hebrew. Yes, I think that is correct. (laughs) So the one that I picked is the New American Standard Bible. Okay. And there actually is a plain old American Standard Bible. Great, I was about to ask. (laughs) Is this one of those things you had to Google later? Uh, I did look, yeah, I I looked it up because I I was curious. I was like, well... There's not an, an old, old international. international. Is there an old American? There is. Okay. So but. this is the new American standard. Yes. So the old American, or just the American standard Bible, yes. was written in 1901 to be the American version of the King James Bible. Okay. But the King James Bible is in English, right? It is. But that, but it was the, the Brits have the King James. We are going to make an American Bible. Great. <laughs> How'd that go for them? It was pretty successful. People liked that one a lot. Okay. Pretty accurate. Um, And they were using original text as their source material, correct? They were, yes. And so then in the 1950s, a non-profit Christian corporation out of La Habra, California, called the Lockman Foundation, decided that they wanted a translation that was equally faithful to the source text as the American Standard Bible, but also included more recent discoveries of ancient manuscripts That's great. And they also wanted to modernize the language a little. Cool. Because we're 50 years out. Yeah. And again, this was also in response to people not liking the Revised Standard Version, which was too liberal. Too liberal. (laughs) It's very funny to me because that's not a particularly loose translation. Great. So, But apparently people have big feelings about the Revised Standard. Big feelings. So they started working on the New American Standard Bible. Okay. And... 16 translators worked on each testament. Oh, wow. And in total, 50 scholars put in a combined 25,000 hours of research on just the New Testament. Oh my god, that hurts my brain. (laughs) We thought the last one were taking it seriously. 
These guys are taking it seriously. Well, if you're going word for word, you have to, like, be hardcore about it. Oh, for sure. And they completed their version in 1971. Okay. And updated it again in 1995. Great. For the 1995 version, they had 20 translators from a bunch of different denominations, and they took three years to do their update, trying to make sure that it was as accurate to the source text as possible. Great. One interesting characteristic of the New American Standard Bible is that it deliberately interprets the Hebrew Bible from a Christian standpoint to try to make the whole Bible more cohesive. Interesting. So if there was a question on, does this word mean this or this, it's equally likely. The one that makes the Hebrew Bible more of a prophecy for the coming of Jesus, that's what they're going to lean into. (laughs) It makes sense that if you are talking about the Hebrew Bible in the context of the New Testament, that if you're trying to go one way or the other to try and lean into the fact that you know there's another book coming rather than this being a standalone piece. Yeah, and our buddy, the Revised Standard Version, did not do this. It just interpreted them as They're just standalone. Two, two separate books. Yeah, or many separate books, sure. as, it, as it were. Yes, but two separate volumes. <laughs> yeah. A common criticism of the New American Standard Bible is that it's clunky and it uses unnatural-sounding English. Usually this is where there are idioms that make sense in the original languages, but they don't make sense in English. This seems like a totally acceptable and anticipated complaint of a word-for-word translation of a dead language. Yep. As one critic said, strong in Greek, but weak in English. Yep. That sounds about right. (laughs) It's also considered a little bit less faithful of a translation than the American Standard Bible. Okay. Because they modernize some of the language? Yeah. It's interesting, though, because there's debates about whether it's more accurate or not, because there were better sources okay. when they when they made the new one, but they were a little bit looser on the translation. Interesting. So, six and one half dozen of another. Yeah. Advocates all about the literalism, and on the Lockman Foundation website is this description of the Bible. Okay. Ultimately, what separates the New American Standard Bible from the various available versions is that the NASB is a literal word-for-word translation from the original languages. In contrast, the others stress either a loose, personalized paraphrase or a freestyle, thought-for-thought translation known as a dynamic equivalent. Both of these place the highest priority on the ease of reading and a lower priority on word-for-word preciseness. While such versions may produce smoother English, the literalness of the Word of God is sacrificed. This has never been an option for the New American Standard Bible. Ooh, that is a hard line. <laughs> yeah. Very This serious. is the word of God and we are not messing around. <laughs> yeah. No, we will not interpret. No. But they did. I mean, they did. Everybody interprets. Of course. <laughs> so the third one that I picked is, is the loosest translation. Okay. This one, I think I've mentioned it to you before. It's called The Message. Okay. You might have. It sounds vaguely familiar. This translation was created by Eugene Peterson. Okay. Just one guy? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, boy. He just did it Did it all himself. It took him a lot longer. I can imagine. He's <laughs> the only one of him. He got a master's degree in Hebrew, but then decided he wanted to become a Presbyterian minister. His original plan was just to be in academia. Sure. But So he went into ministry. And then, as he says, while I was teaching a class on Galatians, I began to realize that the adults in my class weren't feeling the vitality and directness that I sensed as I read and studied the New Testament in its original Greek. 
Writing straight from the original text, I began to attempt to bring the English into the rhythms and idioms of the original language. I knew that the early readers of the New Testament were captured and engaged by these writings, and I wanted my congregation to be impacted in the same way. I hoped to bring the New Testament to life for two different types of people, those who hadn't read the Bible because it seemed too distant and irrelevant, and those who had read the Bible so much that it had become old hat. So he's trying to make the New Testament hip and cool. Absolutely. In, like, in the most dad way possible. Yes. <laughs> I also like that he learned Hebrew and then went to seminary, presumably, and while he was there, picked up Greek and Aramaic on the way. Presumably, yeah. I know that's pretty common in seminaries sure. to have to take at least some of those. Yeah. But, like, he just, he can't feel it except in the ancient Greek. Oh, yeah. And so you have to find a way to feel it in the English. And, oh boy, did he feel it. Does, does he feel it? <laughs> he does. Oh, boy. <laughs> So the first thing he published was his form of Galatians okay. that he had made for this Bible study, and it, it got put into just a devotional book. And then an editor at the publishing company, Nav Press, saw it and asked him to write a whole New Testament. Oh, boy. And he wrote most of this in 1991 okay. while he was working at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and he published his New Testament in 1993. Okay. So it took him less time than I thought it would. Yeah, not, not bad on the New Testament. Sure. But then he began working on completing sections of the Hebrew Bible over the next 10 years. And he finally was able to come out with a full message Bible in 2002. Oh, wow. So this is new. Yeah, relatively. Mm -hmm. Advocates for this version say that he picks up on the humor and tone found in the original sources. Sure. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's entertaining. Great. (laughs) Some critics don't count it as a valid translation because it is so paraphrased. Okay. Others complain that he treats it more like a sermon, inserting phrases that really don't need to be in there. Okay. Which he does. Like, sometimes it'll be, like, other translations use a single word, and he'll, like, go on several sentences. Oh, boy. So he's just all over the place. Yeah, and, like, other times he'll gloss over passages, pretty much. There's lots of complaints that he picks and chooses what to focus on. Eugene himself even says that he prefers this translation for first-time readers, and that they should be quickly weaned from it. Okay, so at least he knows his audience. Yeah, and he also said it would make him uneasy if someone were to do a reading from it during a service. Okay, if that's (laughs) how you feel about your translation of the Bible, then maybe that shouldn't be your translation of the Bible. He really is all over the place on it, though, because there's, like, times where he's like, this is the best, this is gonna bring everybody to Christ, this is awesome, Um, and then other times he's like, yeah, it's it's fine. (laughs) Great. It, It seems to be who he's talking to. Okay, he's just equivocating a lot. Yeah. So those are the three translations that I picked. Didn't pick the King James on purpose. Okay. Because that could totally be its own episode because it has a a storied history. Great. We'll put a pin in that one for later. Yeah, I think so. Now we're going to read through three different versions of Psalm 3. Okay. Are we going to start with the most literal or are we going to start in the middle? We're going to start with the most literal, I think. Okay. I think that's what makes the most sense for me. So we're starting with the New American Standard Bible. Here it is. A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. Selah is untranslated. It meant something probably musically. Okay. Because these are songs. Sure. I just figured I'd insert that there so you weren't wondering. No, thank you. I appreciate (laughs) it. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, 
and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. That's as close to word for word as we're going to get in a common Bible. Got it. So next one is the new international version. Cool. So this is the dynamic. Yeah, this one is going to be in the middle. Cool. A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I will call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Okay. So yeah, definitely a little smoother. Yeah, a little easier to read. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel like there was anything in that one that felt out of place compared to what we heard in the direct translation. That's the idea, is that we're not trying to radically change anything. We're just kind of smoothing over, make it a little easier to understand. Yeah, or it was like, it was nice that there were words that just like felt familiar. Yeah. Also, I hope you appreciate that... We're asking God to punch our enemies in the mouth. Literally, please hit them in the face for me. God is your enforcer. Yes. People say that you're not going to save me. Please prove them wrong by punching them in the mouth. I love it. Yeah, I like that one. All right, let's get Buck Wiles. Okay, now time for the message. A David psalm when he escaped for his life from Absalom, his son. God, look, enemies past counting. Enemies sprouting like mushrooms, mobs of them all around me, roaring their mockery. Ha! No help for him from God. But you, God, shield me on all sides. You ground my feet, you lift my head high. With all my might I shout up to God. His answers thunder from the holy mountain. I stretch myself out, I sleep. Then I'm up again, rested, tall and steady, fearless before the enemy mobs, coming at me from all sides. Up, God, my God, help me. Slap their faces, first this cheek, then the other. Now fist hard into the teeth. Real help comes from God. Your blessing clothes your people. <laughs> Enemies sprout up like mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, the, those are the things where people are just like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> that is artistic license if I've ever heard it. I, I love it. I find it so endearing. I don't think if you're trying to actually study the Bible, that's maybe the translation you should use. But I get how it would make it... More approachable. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't think I could learn anything about the Bible from reading it, but I think I could learn the stories of the Bible from reading it. You could. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, boy, that's not even the weirdest passage from the message. There's some that are just bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> I still think enemies sprout up like mushrooms is my favorite part. That one is pretty good. Or slap them on the cheek, one and then the other. Yeah. <laughs> slap their faces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. But yeah, so that's a little taste of differences in translation and part of what makes it hard to interpret this very, very old book. Oh yeah, that was fascinating. Thank you for that, Brian. And I think that I tend to think of the Bible as like super stuffy 
and inaccessible. And so it was kind of nice to hear a couple of different options that felt in different degrees easier to read. Yeah. Because you think of ancient texts as just being in that sort of word-for-word direct translation that's really challenging. Right. And yeah, there's pros and cons to different degrees of ease of readability. For sure. Awesome. (laughs) Uh, Let's take a break, and then we'll come back for some fun. Sounds good. And we're back. And now it's time for the Patronage Pop Quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint and she has to guess what they are the patron of. I'm ready. Who do we have this week? This week, we have St. Peregrine Laziosi. Oh boy, that's a mouthful. Yeah. And maybe it's right. We'll find out. (laughs) No, we won't. We're just going to stick with that. Yep. He was born to a wealthy family in Forli, Italy in 1260. Okay. As a young man, he led a very worldly life. He was also very active in politics as a member of the anti-papal party. Great. (laughs) And yet somehow he becomes a saint. We'll get there. Great. (laughs) I'm excited to see how this goes. Once there was an uprising and the Pope sent St. Philip Benzi to negotiate peace. And Peregrine slapped him in the face. Oh, wow. Which now we know is biblical. Yes. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Philip literally turned the other cheek and offered it to Peregrine. Then he began to pray for him. And he was so overcome by emotion that he immediately repented and converted to Catholicism. Okay, there we go. There we go. A little while later, he had a vision of the Virgin Mary who instructed him to go to Siena and join the Servites. After he completed his training and was ordained, he was sent back to his hometown to found a new house of the Servite order. He was known for being a very good preacher and a really good confessor, meaning the person who hears confessions. Sure. That makes sense. But when he was not doing either of these things, he spent all of his time in silence and solitude as a way to repent for his past life. He also, as a form of repentance, did not sit down for 30 years. Oh my god. (laughs) Please tell me he's the patron saint of chairs. (laughs) I mean, at least he wasn't doing it on a pillar. It's true. He does have a little a little of that going for him. Later in life, possibly related, possibly not, he developed foot cancer. Okay. The cancer was spreading, so the doctors decided that they were going to amputate. All right. And he spent the entire night before the operation in prayer. He briefly fell asleep, and while he was asleep, he had a vision of the crucified Jesus leaving the cross and touching his cancerous leg. When morning came, his foot was completely healed, and he lived another 20 years. Wow. And then he died at the age of 85, which is pretty good. Yeah. uh, Of natural causes. So, Shannon, what is St. Peregrine the patron of? Is he the patron saint of amputees? Weirdly, no. I mean, I guess he wasn't actually an amputee, and it might be kind of cruel to make your patron somebody who was going to get their foot amputated and then didn't. But it was a guess. Fair enough. Uh... Is he the patron saint of people who converted in adulthood? Still no. Okay, then I don't know. (laughs) He is the patron against cancer. Cool, that makes sense. Against breast cancer. Okay, weirdly specific. Yeah, you know, I don't know, it's, we're a pink metal. Sure. Or something. Um, So patron against breast cancer, patron against open sores, against skin diseases, Patron for AIDS patients, for cancer patients, and for sick people generally. 
Okay. I mean, all of those generally make sense in the broad scheme of things. Yeah. He was sick and got better. Yeah. He had <laughs> cancer and then he didn't have cancer. Yeah. So, all right. We'll give him give him that one. Yeah, that one's not too bad. <laughs> no. Like, I could have probably guessed that. Yeah, I thought you would get cancer. I thought about it and then I was like, I don't know. I really wanted it to be amputees. Nope, sorry. It's all right. Can't though win I, them all. Though I'm sure there's a patron of amputees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'll come up at some point in the patronage pop quiz. Probably. Just just keep listening. There are many more things for us to cover. Many, many saints. So many saints. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for listening this week. If you're enjoying the show, go on your podcast app of choice. Leave us a rating and or review. Tell a friend. Or you can tell us on our email at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com, on Twitter at school number four heathens, or on Facebook. Search the name of the show or go to facebook.com slash school number four heathens. Thank you so much to Adam Griffin for our awesome music on the show. Check him out at alteringgravity.wordpress.com. Thank you to David Griffin for his editing and for the logo for the show. And also, thank you so much for your interest in translation yourself, David. I'm sure this episode will be particularly interesting to you. Yeah, for those of you who forgot, he doesn't edit or uh, make logos professionally. He's a linguist. It's true. (laughs) He is a PhD in linguistics. (laughs) So this one is uh, right up his alley, let's just say. (laughs) But we also are so grateful that he does edit and make logos. It's true. Because those are... You very useful hobbies to us. It's true. <laughs> He's just a good friend. <laughs> and with that, amen? Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod. Oh,